Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Ed Table Talk. That's Education Table Talk for March 2015. Um, welcome, everybody. It's... Uh, it's been uh, quite a February for me, I have to tell you. For those of you who are avid listeners, um, uh, February was a real bad month for me. I got pretty sick. So unfortunately, we had to cancel that month's Ed Table Talk. We're back this month and in, uh, in uh, a rare form with a great group of guests, and we'll get a chance to introduce them in just a second. Um, again, just one up front, I always like to thank our uh our sponsor, MCH, Strategic Data, great group. We'll hear a little bit more about them in just a little bit. So uh, today's uh, show is about education canaries. Um, I, I was told that, that some people don't remember what a canary is, particularly around a mine um, where uh, the canary actually indicates if there are deadly gases in the mine. So maybe we don't want to take that too far, that metaphor with the show. But um, can data-rich systems predict and prevent failure is today's show. And um, I, I really think back to my time, which was now a long time ago when I was in the classroom and um, looking at the kind of data that we had about students. I mean, you had to get the student's cumulative file from the office if you want to look through it. And what's interesting is that you could almost tell as much by how thick the file was as what was actually contained within that file. Um, and, uh, you know, really the discussion with other teachers about the the student that's coming in hard with my ninth graders because they were new to the high school, but uh, you really got once before in an earlier class. But when it came to actual data, data was hard to come by, um, um, factual information. Um, and even the data that I as a teacher provided at that time, I was just beginning to use an Apple II um, to keep my grades on a grade book, but I still had to bubble that into someplace else. So. The, the transfer of data was tough, the, and, and it was hard to get access to that information. Now it's much, much easier to, uh, to get access to information. I think the big question is, what do you do with the information? How do you make sense of it? How do you act on it? And particularly the question that we're posing on today's show, which is, can we use that data um, to predict and prevent failure um, in our schools? So um, that's what we're going to be discussing on, t on uh, this month's Ed Table Talk. Um, and uh, uh, let me go ahead and have our guests introduce themselves. We'll go ahead and start um, with Barbara Clements. Barbara, I've known for a long time um, and uh, uh, have worked with her on SIF and a number of other data kinds of items. So, Barbara, tell our, tell our listeners a little bit about you. Okay. Well, I'm probably the, the big data geek among the group, but... Um, <laughs> I've uh, been working in education uh, for over 40 years. I've uh, been involved with education research, evaluation, and consulting on the effective collection and use of education data. I had seven years in the, uh, in, as a researcher doing classroom management research. I worked at the Texas Education Agency, our state department of education, on teacher assessment and evaluation projects, teacher evaluation. 
And then I moved to D.C., where I spent 10 years as Director of Data and Assessment Projects for the Council of Chief State School Officers. And since then, I've been working with ESP Solutions Group on federal, federal, state, and local education data systems. Uh, my focuses tend to be on establishing uh, data standards for collecting and reporting data, data confidentiality, and data governance. I've worked with about 30 states on topics such as merging data sets uh, like K-12 and post-secondary, uh, implementing electronic transcripts, and, and just basically using data effectively. Wow. I get. I didn't even know some of that, Barbara. That's wonderful. So, yeah, you're right. You are a, a, quite a data head. So it's Barbara Data Clements. That's your middle name, right? So. Well, I was one time introduced as Dr. Element. They changed the C <laughs> to an E. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, yeah, it's uh, perfect. I like that. Well, let's go next to um, uh, Bill Mead. Bill is actually joining us from uh, Monterey, Mexico, uh, where he's doing some work down there. I first met uh, Bill not that long ago. It was just before I became ill in February. Uh, not meant to make any correlation there, Bill. Um, uh, and that was uh, at the uh, GEPS meeting um, at Microsoft. So, uh, Bill, give some background. And you have a really interesting, varied background. Okay. I'm currently Director of Data Science at Neo Analytics in Seattle, Washington. And uh, I've been doing data science since before it was data science. I have a PhD from Michigan State in 1991 with minors in electrical engineering, evolutionary ecology, econometrics, and statistics. And at the time, I said, no, I, I never did figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. But when I grew up, it turned into data science. So I've been working as a modeler across disciplines from molecular biology to marketing mix analysis um, for, I don't know, 24 years. Um, I've worked in healthcare data. I've worked in, I've taught about half of my career I've spent in the university mm -hmm. teaching. And um, so I've interacted with the most of the big uh, teaching platforms like Pearson's. I was one of the obstreperous customers of MathXL for Pearson. And um, that's about it. Well, uh, I, I met you. I didn't realize that you were – are you a runway modeler, or is that just a just standard data? Uh, I was meant to I'm be more of a runway avoider than a runway model. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, data science has so much hype around it that I just say I'm a yeah. cross-disciplinary modeler and um, leave it at that. Perfect. Well, thank you again for your uh, all your efforts to make it to today's show. So – and uh, thank you so much, Bill. And let's go to uh, Dan Ginsberg. Uh, Dan, I've known a number of years since he was at SchoolNet, and uh, Dan has a, a, a background um, that is, starts in the classroom, where I started as well. So, Dan, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? Sure. Thanks, Michael. So, uh, hi, I'm Dan Ginsberg. Um, I've been in, in and around the ed tech world for about 15 years now. Um, and prior to that, I was a middle school science teacher in uh, public school in New York City in Health Kitchen. Um, after I left the classroom, I got into the world of, of product management and technology, particularly around education technology, and joined a small little startup called SchoolNet. Um, and was with SchoolNet for the better part of a decade, 
um, running product management and building really what was at that time the first wave of web-based um, data management systems for school districts um, that grew over time into an assessment system and a teacher evaluation system and a curriculum management system. Um, and I was kind of at the heart of that, working with school districts and ultimately states um, around the country in not just putting in place these systems to transform culture and practice to really use data to help drive uh, instruction and decision-making. Uh, SchoolNet was acquired by Pearson in 2012, and I, uh, I followed along. And uh, when I arrived at Pearson, uh, they said, congratulations, here's a whole bunch of student information systems and a dozen other products that, uh, that you're now uh, in charge of. So I actually ran, uh, ran a product management group that spanned student information systems, data systems, assessment systems at Pearson. Uh, and now I'm um, actually still there and serve as a, as in a product strategy role for across all of our businesses. Uh, and I also sit on the board of a charter school in Bedside, Brooklyn. Nice, nice. And your your role at Pearson is global, is that right? That's right. So um, so there's there's a few different groups within Pearson whose purview spans everything that we do across the world in helping people improve through learning, and I'm in one of those groups. So I look across our entire portfolio of products and businesses and help steer us towards our uh, future. Well, perfect. And uh, I, I like so much that you have that background in the classroom to bring to that. So, and uh, well, thanks for thanks for joining us, Dan. I really appreciate it. So um, now you've had a chance to meet each of our guests. And so now we're going to go into our first segment of the show, which is, and people tell me they love it, You Can't Handle the Truth. And on You Can't Handle the Truth, we provide each guest with a rumor based on issues in the industry. Um, there's always a little bit of truth in some of them, but one of them is truthier than the other, to use a term that is emerged in our lexicon. Um, and at the end of the show, we're, our guests are going to discuss those and determine which the one they think is actually the truth. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, and uh, Bill Mead is going to be the first one to share with us. Bill is going to be reading a scenario, um, a rumor that we call, uh, what, me fail? Go ahead, Bill. Okay. A few years ago, the fourth grade teachers at an elementary school were reviewing academic goals for their students. A primary concern was students' performance on assessments related to their state standards. The state had recently put in place a data system that was implemented locally, giving the teachers access to historical data and predictive analysis of their new students' standing. In re reviewing this data, teachers were alarmed to find that nearly 20% of their students were on a predicted trajectory to fail in reading. In a fourth grade group of 55 children, failure by nine students, 20%, constituted an unacceptably high percentage. We refused to accept the outcome as inevitable, said the school principal. The data gave us a peek into one possible future, but it also gave our team time to develop a strategy to reverse the trend and set our students on a solid path to achievement and success. Teachers decided that the targeted students would benefit most by participation in small instructional groups. As a result of the small groups, students who previously were crying from frustration suddenly became engaged and confident, said the teacher. It was exciting to witness, just to see that spark in their eyes and a return of the excitement and passion for learning was so rewarding. As a result, all nine students passed the assessment at the end of the school year. The principal stated, the extraordinary success might never have happened without real-time access to data at each step of the process. We think that sometimes being told you can't do something makes you try even harder. 
wonderful. Thanks for for reading um, what me fail, um, uh, and that rumor is uh, again about an elementary school where they've been told that that several students uh, were not going to succeed, and yet they buck the system and use the data to make sense um, and really move those kids ahead and ultimately had them succeed. So thank you, Bill, for for reading that rumor. We'll go next to Dan Ginsburg. And uh, Dan's going to be reading. Uh, is going to be reading. What uh, would you be my data? Go ahead, Dan. For, sure. For decades, many educators have gotten to know their students by way of personal interactions and observation of their schoolwork and study habits. This is to say that a teacher's gradebook contains just the tip of the iceberg of what they know about each student. Increasingly, educators are also being given access to the rich data being compiled about their students. While this data has the potential to provide teachers with better insight, many educators find themselves under or even unprepared to make use of these new data. School administrators and district personnel who are excited about getting teachers to use student data to inform their teaching often ask, how do I get my teachers interested in data, especially the unmotivated ones? This reluctance doesn't necessarily mean that the teachers are unmotivated. One researcher stated that when teachers don't embrace an idea or mandate, it's often because they feel overwhelmed. They just don't see the time or need for another professional tool. Educators must be presented with a compelling reason if they're going to adopt and integrate data into their bag of tricks. The premise behind the baseball movie Field of Dreams is if you build it, they will come. And that may work for some education initiatives, but to realize the benefits of using data, we need to reference a different baseball movie, Moneyball, where data drives decision-making and decision-making drives performance. The subtitle for that story is The Art of Winning the Unfair Game, which seems like a perfect fit for the challenges associated with educating all students. Well, wonderful. Thanks for Dan. And again, the challenges that all of us know, regardless of whether it's teachers or whoever, about motivating people to change a little bit around their practice and get them to use different kinds of tools in their in their work, and in this case, teachers using data to inform their practice. So thank you very much for reading that, Dan. And last, but certainly not least, we have Barbara Clements, who's going to read us a moving story. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes a teacher just clicks with their students motivating them to achieve. One such educator was called out in a research brief as having a strong positive effect on student achievement, which as bureaucrats speak for really helps students succeed. Everyone at the school where she taught was aware of how great an educator she was. It wasn't until classroom-specific data had been obtained comparing the achievement of students in her class, however, to those in other classes, that the system officially recognized her gift. The school district saw an opportunity. Against the wishes of parents and administrators at her school, the talented educator was moved to another school in the same district that had not for a second year made adequate yearly progress, or AYP. In, a, in an attempt to bolster the school's achievement level, the relocated teacher was given all of the students who were performing significantly below grade level. To say the least, she struggled. Some months into her job, she confided to the principal that she felt like a flop. Citing that the activities that engaged her previous students didn't seem interesting to her students, her new students. When the principal went to observe her classroom, she said, it was a bit like a comedy act with bad timing. 
I had seen her work at her prior school, and she seemed like a different teacher here. The research report stated that, and this is a quote, the teacher's efficiency, as evidenced by her students' assessment data, showed little to no improvement, end quote, at the new school. When asked about her low numbers, she made it clear that she wasn't as confident in her new classroom. She states, quote, I was used to working in a heterogeneous classroom where students challenged each other. I guess I didn't have the right set of tools and strategies for these kids, end quote. Well, thank you, Barbara. And I I really, in reading that, felt for that teacher. Um, I think some of us have been there before. And uh, uh, the challenges of going from, uh, you know, a successful combination and then being put in a position where you may or may not have the right tool set. And, and some of the questions that opens for us about about uh, how we use data to inform management and administration of schools and the like. And we'll get to that conversation later. Thanks again for reading that to all three of you um, for reading through your rumors. And again, we'll discuss those a little bit later in the show. So before we just jump into our discussion about the topic at hand, I do want to thank MCA Strategic Data um, for their support of Education Table Talk. Um, if you're not familiar with MCH Strategic Data, you should be. Um, they have the monitor service, which in fact keeps up on the latest uh, and greatest information, far more granular than many others in, in, who provide similar services. Um, and uh, they provide new names um, before many of the competitors in the market. Uh, they provide near real-time updates on school personnel so you can reach the right people at the right time. Um, they have a, a zero gotcha fees, which means that um, there are no gotchas um, at the end uh, period around sort of delivery of, of information and reaching uh, the customer. Um, they really do have the cleanest data available. I've looked at the data and have worked with many of these systems, and um, they've put every effort into helping you reach the right uh, people in, you, in the school districts um, with, with your product. Um, and uh, uh, they're just a great organization to work with. If you haven't worked with them, do take the opportunity to do so, and I'll give you some contact information later. So with that said, let me go to our topic. Again, the, the title of the show today, Education Canaries, Can Data-Rich Systems Predict and Prevent Failure? And so we're sitting at the table. What does anybody want to discuss? Anything you want to bring up around this topic? Sure, I'll start, Michael. This is Dan. Um, Thanks, Dan. You know, I think there's, there's the, the conversation around data use is really an important, great conversation. And I think over the last decade or so, we've seen a huge shift in in the way that school districts look at, think about, and manage their data. Um, but at the end of the day, I truly believe that the use of data to drive decisions and instruction in schools is really a question of culture and leadership. Um, more so than it is about systems and elements. Um, and I think that the the real change here is one around um, how do we shift the culture of our schools to really focus on making insightful decisions about the data and not just using it to highlight where there's problems. I agree That's with great. you completely. I agree with you because because uh, there are a lot of mistakes that can be made using data as well. And I think uh, having a better sense of uh, watching how students are progressing and um, not just looking at grades but looking at actual behaviors and learning 
is uh, a lot more effective than uh, just averaging grades, for instance, or looking at twice-a-year tests. So how do we bring those together? I mean, you know, there's 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 potentially a place for both the qualitative observational piece as well as the quantitative kinds of data. Is there is there coexistence? Is uh, How do we make that data uh, something that we can use to inform instruction? Um, I'll jump in on this one. Um, I think that the world is at the end of the age of reporting. We're at the we're at the point where reports don't give enough guidance on what needs to be done, and we need to move to something better. And the something better is modeling, and um, just a simple multiple regression model will let you see how each variable interacts independently. And um, it's it's kind of like reports are like trying to do brain surgery from a photograph of somebody's head from the outside. It may work for some operations, but for most, not nearly as well as a, uh, an MRI that shows you the inner structure inside the head. And we're at the point where people not need to start thinking in terms of models so that they can see what's really going on. The big question today is why did this happen? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point, and I think it speaks a little bit to the types of data that are uh, that are currently available versus a lot of the data that's either not captured or is holed up in um, in strange places. For example, a lot of the data that schools have these days are um, data from standardized tests, sometimes data from relatively infrequent benchmark tests, uh, a whole set of demographic data, and maybe some um, some behavioral data particularly in, in the in the format of uh discipline attendance and uh and sort of tardiness. Um but there's mm-hmm. a huge wealth of data that, that we sort of categorize as learning exhaust, um, which is as as more and more learning and activities happen uh online, there's a whole bunch of new data that can potentially provide more granular and more insightful uh data to inform regression models and other types of analytics. Um, that can really help pinpoint um, places in the learning trajectory where a child is going astray. Um, And I think the better we can all get as publishers and companies and producers of ed tech at capturing that data and making it available to um, the sort of larger data analytics systems and districts, the better we'll be at really being able to pinpoint uh, how to target any type of remediation. But I think there's a real need for uh, uh, professional development for teachers on how to understand this information and use it in the classroom. And uh, in the, I haven't, I haven't looked recently, but in in fairly recent years, we were we were looking at the programs that are offered in teacher education programs, and they just aren't they aren't data rich. They don't work a lot with teachers on bringing um, bringing standardized data together with classroom-based data to try to to help establish those projections on, on how models for how students are learning. I think that's a fantastic point. I think we see uh, a lot of data immaturity in, in schools and a lot of and a lot of the time that the school leaders spend with their instructional staff 
is really around how to make sense of how to make sense of the data, how to access data, how to generate the uh, reports, uh, if you will, that that they need. And it takes a really long time in the maturity curve to get teachers thinking about their data in terms of how to actually um, plan and differentiate instruction. And I think that provide that that sort of creates a scenario where there's always uh, remediation, if you will, on the on the teachers uh, to help them get to where they need to be to really have a data-informed instructional program. I guess I'd push back on more training being the answer because, uh, in my experience, having taught college statistics at, I don't know, three or four institutions, statistics is the single worst-taught class on the university campus. And the the magic is to get teachers putting their fingers into data to what we need is an on-ramp for teachers so that they see, I can do this. And there are a couple of on-ramps out there that are, I think, spectacular right now. Um, one is the R programming language and uh, R Studio. If you install those, you've got everything you need to, to go. Another one is Azure Machine Learning from Microsoft, which actually takes um, modeling and makes it like uh, dragging shapes around in PowerPoint. You drag shapes onto a canvas and then connect them up. And this is modeling anyone can do. And so uh, at Neil Analytics, we were um, big Microsoft Azure pushers but Azure ML has a vision, Azure Machine Learning, has a vision of being modeling for the rest of us. And I think it's almost easier to get people exploring and discovering uh, modeling if they haven't had a lot of training in it. Because once they've had training in statistics, all they can think of is, I can't remember this formula. Right. So, you know, having, having taught stats, I did it all in Excel, and my students still flushed everything they learned on the way out of the classroom and didn't see that it was a way to understand the world. Well, I guess I would, I would push back a little bit and say that from my experience in working with teachers across the country is that it is absolutely impossible to create a data system simple enough to um, provide a easy on-ramp for teachers. And providing and, and any type of system that requires any type of setup or connecting or um, dragging and dropping, whatever, any system that has any steps in advance of presenting someone with a piece of insight is uh, is a barrier to adoption. So um, I like I like the thought of getting fingers in and hands dirty, um, but my experience is that uh, that the more insight, the more upfront, the less setup. The simpler, the more black and white, uh, the better. And so, Dan, let me ask, what about the kinds of tools that Bill's talking about in the hands of um, an administrator, a curriculum lead at a district level, to be able to pr provide and create and, and, and respond to feedback from teachers and provide them with information that almost is really just a dashboard where they're not manipulating you know, the everyday classroom teacher is not manipulating that data, but they're really reading as a dashboard and have conversation around what is it that I that I do with students differently to address those issues. Sure. So uh, there are incredibly impressive uh, 
data analysts, data modelers um, in school districts that are that are using these kinds of tools all of the time, um, but it doesn't scale particularly well. I think I think those those people and that type of work is really great for the macro type analysis of uncovering trends and focus on systemic wide problems and potentially identifying sort of on on the larger system where where some uh, additional resources might prove uh, to be to have outsized benefit. But as far as uh, a small group of individuals in a school district creating the types of analyses that individual teachers would need, it just doesn't scale well. And I've seen that, and I've seen districts years ago try to implement Cognos or try to put in place some of the Microsoft stack um, and try to turn that into a off-the-shelf product for teachers, and that just doesn't work. Barbara, that's my what's your experience doing this at a at a state level? Do you get a chance? Did you get a chance to see it enacted down at the classroom? Well, I've I've not I've not been in a lot of classrooms lately, but right. uh, uh, but I've seen states try to put tools in place that can be used at the local level, and the 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 key point that. Uh, uh, I keep hearing come up is we need to have some way to look at uh, these official data and our locally developed data in such a way that we can, that we have a better sense. Because if you think about it, you know, first of all, tests are generally not given that frequently. Uh, but demographic information is helpful, but uh, just to a certain extent. But uh, being able to somehow crank, you know, uh, some, like some grade level tests that uh, at the end of units right. and things like that. Uh, I've, I've, before there was any technology in the classroom at all, I saw a teacher who gave uh, a, a math class that um, was junior high, and they would repeat. They would have kids take uh, do items uh, that they'd been doing over the last few days. So it was like not just finding out whether they knew how to do it, but also are they remembering it over time. So uh, there's there's some local knowledge that we need to somehow figure out how to capture and, and show how that relates to the other big data that are typically in data systems. Right. It, it so sounds I would like interject a... Go ahead, Bill. I would interject a book here on um, on Dan's pretty pessimistic view <laughs> of change of <laughs> teachers. I mean, teachers are so slammed. Teachers live in an execution culture, and modeling doesn't happen in execution cultures. I, I freely admit that. But there's a marvelous book. I've been reading on change management for 25 years, and there's a book, Switch, by Heath and Heath, and the subtitle of the book is How to Change When Change is Hard. And it's the single best book I've read on change management. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. And it's very effective. It has just one immense change, you know, because the kind of changes Heath and Heath are going after are the hopeless changes, that things are really hopeless right now. We can't change. And, you know, that's when you go back to we got to rebuild the system from the foundation. You know, we have the same problem for every education or same solution for every education problem, which is train the teachers better. And, you know, we've been trying that for 50 years, and it doesn't seem to be working because it doesn't really address the problems. And so we need to blend um, sort of regional and local information, and models are a great way to do that. And... Um, 
that's, I guess that's all I have to say. Heath and Heath, Switch, fantastic book. And we're going to put the reference to that actually up on the Ed Table Talk website, Bill, so uh, our listeners can get access to that. So thank you for that reference. We're going to take a, a brief break from our conversation around this topic, and we'll come back to, particularly after uh, this next segment, we'll come back to, so what, how is this relevant to the kinds of products that our listeners are are creating, even if those are not data-specific products? But right now, what I'd like to do is go to our uh, is go to our donors choose um, segment. Um, we one way that we thank our uh, thank our guests, other than just thanking them <laughs> on the show, is we give them fifty dollars that they can spend on the donors choose uh, website um, to support a project that is of interest to them. And uh, each of our guests have selected a project, and I'm going to go ahead and start with. Um, Barbara Clements, um, who's going to tell us why she selected the project, Being Creative and Bilingual. Thank you, uh, Michael. It's This um, uh, project is from uh, Ms. Nunez. Uh, it's a books project at the Jaime Pedron Elementary School here in Austin, Texas. It's a new school, and so they're somewhat limited in resources still, and it's also in a low-income area. So the academic level of the kids are unfortunately lower than they should be, and it's, they're having trouble bringing them up uh, because of their language gaps and, and like a lack of bilingual resources. So the teacher is trying to help the kids learn to read in English, but she also recognizes the importance of building foundations in their primary language. And uh, so she needs bilingual books, and she needs materials. She wants to add a creative aspect to it. Uh, to get some hands-on activities to make the learning a little more uh, um, interesting to the students. My um, undergraduate degree was in Spanish and, and education, so as a result, I've had I've always had an interest in second language learning, and I understand the importance of building competency in one's uh, native language. Plus, I like the creative aspect of this project, so that's why I chose this one. Near and dear to your heart, it sounds like. So, um, yeah, yeah, that sounds wonderful. Um, and I think that hasn't been fully funded yet. So, you know, for those who are listeners to this show live or within the few days afterwards, you may want to go out there and, and follow Barbara's lead and support that uh, that project. Let's go next to uh, Dan. Dan Ginsburg um, selected to support Kinder Kids Can Create. And I just like the alliteration of that, Dan, but tell us about okay. it. Sure. So, um, so as a father of two preschool age daughters, um, I uh, I feel the need to work really hard to keep their uh, to keep their engagement in in science and sort of creating things and building uh, at, at a very high level and something that my family uh, sort of goes goes above and beyond uh, to try to instill within those kids, particularly since they're girls. Um, and this donors choose campaign. Uh, was uh, was established uh, in an early childhood academy in Houston um, to help support their creation of a of a maker lab in the preschool. And I've seen these maker labs starting to pop up in elementary schools and junior highs and high schools. Um, but I think it's really important to start it early and have kids building and creating and using the types of 21st century tools that they're going to use when they're actually. Uh, employed in the 21st century. Um, so this campaign is specifically around 
helping to uh, fund the purchase of a 3D printer and filament to use in the uh, in their new makerspace. Well, and it looked like, from when I looked at it, Dan, like they really understood how they were going to use that, and it wasn't just another piece of equipment for the classroom. So they were pretty close to being fully funded. So if you if those listeners are out there, feel free to go out and finish off their funding for them. So thank you for selecting that, Dan. And uh, next we'll go to uh, Bill. Bill selected In Our Hands, In Our Brains. Tell us, Bill, why okay, did you I, select that? I, I picked it because it was a high-poverty school nearby where I live. It's in Linwood, Washington. It's Mrs. Hart at Spruce Elementary School. And she just wanted the basic stuff to do um, hands-on activities with the kids, most of which is reusable, washable pads and that kind of stuff. So um, I just thought, you know, this looks good because it's basics. What I really wanted to find was somebody who wanted to um, start teaching problem-solving instead of math in the schools, but they didn't seem to have that on donor's juice. So, Got it. Well, maybe somebody will come up with that. We'll keep our eyes out for that. Well, thank you so much to all three of you. Um, for your selection on Donors Choose, and I know that uh, typically our guests get a little nice note um, from the teacher and students in the classroom, so that's always a delight. So there's a little surprise that you'll get a little bit later on. Um, and again, we, we do support uh, Donors Choose, and in fact, uh, the founder of the organization was one of the keynote speakers at uh, at uh, South by Southwest EDU this year, and uh, I think they've gotten a lot of uh, visibility. So let me go back to um, to our conversation. We were talking a lot about how to traverse this data at different levels. I mean, everything from sort of the macro level data um, going down to sort of classroom data, and and um, and the ability, the the importance of really negotiating those kinds of data and making them useful. A question that came out as I was listening to the conversation here at the table was, um, you know, at the same time as we model. So we want to use data to model. How do we make sure modeling doesn't become profiling, and we suddenly start thinking about kids as a as a two B three and not Jan or Joey or or Jenny? Um, how do we make sure we use that data appropriately? Any any thoughts about that? I can I can mention that I, I've had uh, discussions over the over the years with people talking about putting data into the hands of kids and let you know uh, obviously giving them more responsibility for their learning um oh, I, I, like I find that. that fascinating i don't know that i've i've seen it done successfully but uh but certainly there you know particularly with online uh activities uh it'd be nice for uh, to have things that could help them track how well they're doing and not just being some outside person uh, looking at how they're doing. Yeah, Michael, I think it's a it's a great uh, point of conversation, and I think that all of us who are involved in any way with dealing with data about kids and even adults need to um, proactively place data stewardship and data security and data data privacy of our agendas. It's not something that should be bolted on after the afterthought. Right. I think. Um, it's, it's absolutely critical that that we have a trusted relationship with with states and school districts and families around the data that that our policies are set in stone, our systems are designed to to achieve those to achieve those goals, and we use uh, we use data responsibly, um, and that needs to be foundational 
And then on top of that, there, there's obviously a set of protocols uh, that need to be in place uh, and trainings that need to be in place because there are going to be people that do have access to data that shouldn't be um, shared and exposed or emailed that are photocopied or posted in strange places. So yeah. uh, I think at the heart of it is, is, is the data privacy, data stewardship uh, conversation. I guess Please my stop. thought is yeah. Go ahead, Bill. My thought on how to going back to the question, which was how to avoid profiling and and bad things happening. Um, the you know in my scenario, I I thought it was kind of interesting because my scenario was the um, the teachers got access to data that predicted their students were going to fail. And I've actually built some systems around actual student data and. Dan and I actually discussed this on the, the rehearsal call. Um, it's not really hard to see who's at risk. Uh, those teachers not knowing that probably means they were so slammed with entering the data in the in the grade books that they weren't really analyzing, just sitting back and looking at the zeros, all the zeros in the columns in the Excel spreadsheet or whatever they were using. And um, so I think that People are so slammed, this goes back to there's no room for modeling when when it's all execution. Um, modeling is really tightly related with reflection. And in mm -hmm. execution cultures, there's no time for reflection. And, um, you know, if you don't want to profile students, then don't model at the student level is one answer. But if you want to predict who's going to fail, you have to model at the student level. Um, so you're going to need a lot of reflection before you're going to have people making wise use of models. You're going to have to go through um, making mistakes in order to get the tacit knowledge, the deep knowledge of how this stuff works uh, into the teachers so that they can use it optimally. There is definitely a learning curve. Yeah, and I do, let, me, let me just call out a particular book, and, I, and then we'll go, Dan, I know you're about to chime in, but... One of my favorite books is called The Reflective Practitioner, and that's a book by Donald Schoen. And um, just to show how relevant all of this is, this book was published back in 1959, um, but it is still relevant today in terms of thinking about how do I reflect on my practice, how do I make use of that, and I'd love to see us do an update of that to think about how do we use data as well. Um, we'll reference that as well on the website. Dan, you were going to jump in? Yeah, sure. So... I think that the conversation about modeling is an interesting one, and I feel like it's probably um, incredibly useful the larger of a scale system you go at and the larger the data sets are. But uh, to, to, to bring the conversation on a slightly different angle, so I'm on the board of a charter school in Bedside, Brooklyn. We are a middle school, so we take in about 100 um, sixth graders a year. And our incoming class has, on average, 5% proficiency in reading and math. So you don't need to do a whole lot of modeling to know which 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 kids are at risk. Um, and to move the needle, we, we certainly put in place lots and lots of remediation programs. But the, the the thing that kind of helps the most is using using the incoming data uh, about the students to help prepare the teachers to teach the kids. So right. oftentimes the conversation is, is about using data to pinpoint individual things about individual kids or groups of kids, but we can also use the data to pinpoint areas where teachers need help in reaching, reaching a population that's incredibly challenging. That's a that's great right. point. And, and some of the most exciting things I've seen 
have uh, look at, for instance, achievement test information, and and for a teacher looking at where uh, their kids did the the least well, and and giving that teacher um, professional development or pairing them up with somebody else to uh, to learn uh, teaching strategies in that particular area, but but similarly to look at a group of kids and find out where their weaknesses are and making sure that all of the teachers, say, at a grade level, are working together to, particularly in a, a fairly homogeneous setting, to uh, to ensure that all the kids are getting as much stimulation in areas where they're weak as possible, while, again, pushing them to, to go beyond uh, uh, wherever wherever they can. Yeah. We've actually we've actually used the data about our incoming kids to change our hiring pattern. Ah. Right. Um, for example, we found that despite the fact that we were a sixth grade, we had an incoming sixth grade class, that many of the kids were reading on a first and second grade level. So in our middle school, we decided to translate some of our open positions into early literacy specialists. Ah, excellent. Right. So so look so. So data used at different levels in the sort of organizational hierarchy can lead to very different types of decisions. Um, and I think that that's probably uh, an important lesson here is the data can tell you a lot of things, but you kind of need to ask the right questions of it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, those questions differ dramatically based on the portrait of the, the portrait of the population, the level of the organizational hierarchy, and the granularity of data available. Perfect. Let me ask one question before we move to the next segment, and that is, you know, so we've talked a lot about how schools can use the data. How do you, thinking about our listenership for this show, uh, what would you suggest to those who are in industry creating products that may not even be data products, they might be curriculum materials? How, how, what should they be thinking about um, around, around uh, using this data? I guess or, from, or from my perspective, the anyone who's building any products that are uh, actively involved in the instructional process really need to, from the beginning, understand what are the outcomes that I'm trying to influence with this product, whether that's a learner outcome, whether that's a, an efficiency metric, uh, whether that's a, a literacy improvement, and build the product and system in such a way that you can clearly measure the success of your product and yeah. um and an outcomes oriented approach to product development um I think will ultimately be successful in the market right we're going to get a chance in a little bit later at the end of the show we're going to have a, our our guests are going to give us a little bit of a comment about what would you tell a publisher um, who wants to know how data systems will help their business? So each one of our guests is going to get a little uh, line to tell you. So if you're listening uh, and that's relevant to you, listen at the end of the show, you'll get a little little help there. So um, uh, let's go ahead. I want to talk a little bit again about our uh, sponsor for the show, MCA Strategic Data. Um, they're going to be at the ASU GSV um, Summit um, in uh in Arizona in early April, and look for Barry uh, for Larry Buckwhite there, and uh, Larry's great, and I'm sure he'll be happy to talk to you about what MCH is up to, um, and they're again doing some interesting work. They also just released in middle of March actually a games 
uh, game-based learning uh, market drivers report, and uh, it's a, a good piece online that you can find at their website, done by uh, Annie Galvin Tyke, um, and again, very interesting around gaming. and And I it, that gives me a nice little segue to say that our our next show on April 21st is about uh, play to learn part one. We have um, uh, many parts we see it going with this. Um, and our question is, when will educational games be mainstreamed to instructional resources? Or are they already? And so do take a look at that report out on the MCH site. You can find that at mchdata.com. Um, and again, a great group to work with. And let me know if you want me to, to give you a reference there. So um, let me go now to our next segment, which is about gaming the conference. This is where we have a chance to talk about conferences that are coming up in the next few months. They may or may not be related to our topic. And uh, uh, Barbara had mentioned, which I thought was great, um, was to you know mention that AERA um, is coming up uh, April 16th through 20th in Chicago. Why? Why do you think some of our listeners might want to go to AERA, Barbara? Well, I, I was involved in AERA for years and years and years. Uh, it's a huge organization, 25,000 members, and uh, most of them are academics, but. Um, and they have these giant meetings with millions of sessions, it seems like. But uh, they talk a lot about how data are used to improve student learning at all levels of the education system from early childhood through professional education. Uh, it's a little bit overwhelming, but they have some good software yeah. for scanning sessions by topic. Um, one of the things that I always look forward to is sort of the political aspects uh, the reauthorization of No Child Left Behind is under discussion still. Uh, so there will be uh, multiple sessions on that, I'm sure. Um, there's a division called Division H, uh, Research, Evaluation, and Assessment in Schools. It consists primarily of folks from state and local education agencies. So their sessions tend to be focused on what's happening in the classroom and how data are used to affect student learning. And, and they have a competition among evaluation reports, and they post them in their exhibits, and that the final thing I was going to say is they have a huge exhibit hall uh, with uh, exhibits from a lot of different companies, including testing companies, companies that develop and install data systems, and other types of technology companies, so it's a good opportunity to meet with and get to know what's going on in those companies. Perfect. Well, that's great, Barbara. And again, you know, I realize we didn't say what AERA is. We're also close to it. Um, it's American uh, American Education Research Association, and it is a huge conference. But again, I think approachable. It's really you can narrow down your area of interest and and uh, go to sessions that are relevant, probably for product managers, people who are uh, looking at particular topics. Thank you for speaking on that, Barbara. Uh -huh. um, let me go next uh, to uh, actually the the conference at which I met Bill Mead, and that is the GEPS conference. Uh, which is a Global Education Partners Conference held by uh, for uh, Microsoft, um, typically held in February in Redmond, Washington, early in the year, and then there's usually another one um, in the July time frame. Time frame. I think last year it was like in Houston. I have to say honestly, I don't want to be in Houston in July. Um, but uh, uh, tell us a little bit about what made that a good meeting for you, Bill. Well, what makes a good meeting is meeting new people, and yes. the meetings are always overscheduled. They have way too much time with talking heads in front of the room with remote pointers um, and not enough time mixing the attendees together. But GEPS was um, 
it was amazing to me because literally you would go from table to table. The room was set up with round tables and people were at tables and, and I walked in to present and every table had something else really cool and oddball. Um, I started out by seeing an oddball Android um, laptop. You know, the laptop's going to change the world. And um, it was a company from, I think, Holland in the, or, or um, Belgium. And, uh-huh. um, and you could just see, you know, that it was cool from the outside and um, cool and cheap and all that good stuff. But, you know, I ran into, um, you know, the book publishers, the dummies people were there, and um, the Oxford English Dictionary people. I just, you know, I read, therefore I am. I'm a a real reader, and um, so that I I was really interested in all the publishers personally. But it's a great conference. If you're in the technology for education space, it would be a really great conference for a small company to go to um, and start networking and finding out who natural partners would be and um, just sort of see how see the lay of the land. Yeah, I've I've gone the last few years and I find I really like the shift from technology for technology to technology to support education. I think it's really gotten much stronger that way. So um, in and uh, the fact that you're on the show is good proof of good networking there. So thank you, Bill. Uh, for mentioning that, and I really appreciate having seen your great presentation at that conference. Um, uh, let's see, there are a few other conferences I wanted to mention. NCTM is coming up, National Council for Teachers of Mathematics, 15th through 18th of April in Boston. I would be remiss if I did not mention the SIIA Ed Industry Summit, which is coming up in San Francisco in uh, early June. I think that starts on the 3rd and runs through the 5th. That also includes the the Cody's Awards, um, which are going to be on the evening of the 5th. Um, and then uh, the AAP, Association of American Publishers, Content and Context Conference, is in early June. I co-chair that conference and uh, look forward to hopefully seeing many of you there. So um, those are the conferences. Let's go to our follow-up segment on You Can't Handle the Truth. We had three uh, rumors or, or scenarios um, just to remind you, we had uh, Bill talking about what? Me fail? About a group of fourth grade teachers who had data about which children were going to fail and how they overcame that. Um, Dan read one about would you be my data about how do we get educators engaged with thinking about data as part of their practice. And Barbara had a moving story about a teacher who was successful at one school, was moved to another, and was faced with challenges. So, yes, which ones of those? Which one do you think is true and why? Well, I thought mine was true, but the other ones had uh, some plausibility as well. From my experience, I think that that the story about the identification of the nine struggling kids, the magical assignment of remediation, and their um, immediate turnaround to be successful seemed far-fetched based on my experiences. So I would tell you that while the the framework of that one seemed to be compelling and true. It felt a little bit too after-school specialist to me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Bill? Oh, I thought that my story had a tell in it because it talked about 20% at the top and nine students at the bottom, and it just kind of looked to me like it was true because it had a tell in it. So I, I think mine was true. But okay. I, my so second we, my second vote is all three of them are true. 
I see. Okay. We haven't pulled that on anybody yet, but I can tell you, and we'll include the reference to this. Ma- Michael, fact, I would uh, not. I would not put it past you to pull that on somebody. So. I, 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 and I appreciate that you think that way about me. That, that, that makes me feel good. Thank you, Bill. And I will probably do that someday now. But um, in fact, yours, Bill, was actually the truth, which is uh, what me fail. This was actually documented at a school um, in Virginia um, with a group of students, 55 students, and a group of fourth grade teachers planning, looking at the data in advance, and being told that nine of them are just not going to succeed, and the strategies that they used to do that. We'll include the reference to that actually on the website as well, um, so you can take a look at that. There is always a bit of truth in each one of these rumors, um, but uh, this one is probably is the one that was uh, specifically true. So um, uh, again, appreciate the conversation around those points, and hopefully those listeners out there um, you'll see a little bit of the truth in each one of them. So thank you again for uh, participating, and you can't handle the truth. Um, as our show begins to wind down here um, for March, uh, I do want to make sure that I thank again our uh, core sponsor, and that's uh, MCH Strategic Data, um, for all their support of this show and the good work that they do. Our next show is on the uh, 21st of April, <clears throat> and that show uh, is going to be our play, play to learn. We have invitations out to three really good guests looking at the nature of uh, uh, open source uh, uh, gaming, um, taking a look at some of the, the data around gaming, and then also taking a look at what does it mean to be a game developer in education and how do I develop for that. Um, I think that uh, uh, we are right now planning out our extended set of shows out through sort of the September time frame. If any of you have any thoughts about a show or you would like to appear on Ed Table Talk um, on around a particular topic, please do let us know. And uh, you can send that information to our producer. Um, and that producer is uh, Peter Rand. And Peter uh, can be reached at peter at edusystemics.com. Again, peter at edusystemics dot com. Um, let's see. What else do we have here going on? Um, I think we're pretty much set. So um, I do want to again thank our thank our guests um, for uh, being on on today's show. Um, Dan, uh, we were hoping to have uh, Jonathan Harbor, who found out that he was on holidays, and Dan, who is also a good friend, um, was willing to step in at the last minute. And Bill, with your travels, um, again appreciate both of you. And as I said at the beginning, um, Barbara, thank you for participating as well. Barbara, what's your What's your role with um, ESP Solutions Group now? Well, I'm I'm basically a consultant. I am available uh, for specific projects, but uh, generally I'm retired. It's kind of fun. <laughs> that sounds and, good. We'll all get there someday, but I think uh, uh, Barbara, if I know well enough, um, she keeps her fingers in it anyhow. Do you still serve on the board? Yes, I'm on the board of ESP, right. Well, there you go. That'll keep you busy. So, um, well, um, again, our next our next show, 21st of April. I look forward to having all of you back uh, listening to the show and joining us for that uh, at the same place. Um, so let me, again, pose a question of our uh, our guests. Um, what parting recommendation would you tell, would you make to a publisher who wants to know how to use, uh, how data systems can help their business? And let me go first to you, Barbara. Well, uh, a couple of things uh, struck me. Uh, one of them, I, I can't help 
having been involved in the data standards development for so long, is it, it's useful for different systems to use the same data standards for collecting and, and saving data. That way, uh, if you merge the data from multiple systems, it'll be easier to interpret the information. And the other one is make sure that data can be downloaded and merged with other data uh, uh, systems. So Perfect. That, uh, Bill. Boy, I, I, <laughs> I'm at a loss. I guess I would say um, look at the data and reflect on it and um, listen to it. Take the time to let it dissolve in your mind. Great. Dan, you have quick 10 seconds. Sure. Well, my opinion might be interesting. Ask your customers. Their view is the most important. Perfect. Thank you all so much for being on Ed Table Talk, and we'll look forward to you joining us again next month. Take care. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.